Welcome to The Buzz with ACT-IAC, your source for the hot topics and top issues affecting the federal technology market. Join us each week to hear insights from government and industry experts, stay informed on the challenges facing the public sector, and gain access to valuable reports and thought leadership. Enjoy. I'm Amy Norgonsalfi with Excel Technologies. I'm the Chief Strategy Officer there. And I'm really excited to introduce this next panel that's talking about climate and national security. I'll, inter- I'll introduce our moderator and then uh, he'll say a few remarks and then we'll move on to this esteemed group of experts on my left. So thank you all. So John Conger, we're really delighted to have him here, is President of Conger Strategies and Solutions. He's Director Emeritus of the Center for Climate and Security. He's the Senior Advisor to the Council on Strategic Risks, and he's the Senior Advisor to the International Military Council on Climate and Security. John formerly served as the Principal Deputy Undersecretary of Defense, Controller, with oversight of the DOD budget, and as Acting Assistant Secretary for Defense for Energy, installation and the environment. And in that role, Mr. Conger oversaw a portfolio that included climate change, development of DOD's climate adaptation plan uh, and strategy, energy security, and many other environmental and risk management issues impacting DOD real property. So I have long admired John's leadership because Through many administrations and while facing a variety of political headwinds, John has remained laser focused on the reality that climate change is posing a real risk to our military readiness and to our national security. So I am pleased to welcome John as our moderator today. Thanks very much, Amy. And and thanks to everybody for having me here. Uh, I'm excited about uh, moderating this panel today and what and we've had a, a good conversation about working with the federal government today, about uh, sustainability impacts and so on and so forth. Um, we're going to talk about national security for the next 40, 45 minutes or so. And what I hope that you will take away is a little bit of pessimism and and fear, something that will keep you up at night and think that this is really, you know, we are all screwed. So um, that that is that is fundamentally uh, the forcing function to action. Um, and unless you're scared, you're, you're not going to be really taking this seriously. So let me, let me give you uh, the bottom line up front. Um, yes, climate change is an environmental issue. Yes, it's an economic issue. It's a health issue. It's a lot of different things, but it's also a national security issue. And, and so in that context, the military has been paying attention to this issue for a long time. Um, this predates or, and it goes across different administrations. You know, we often hear about, well, we're not allowed to say the word climate in this administration and we're supposed to go full, full forward in this one. The fact of the matter is, is that the military's always had sort of a, a moderating impact on all of that. You know, when I was in the Obama administration uh, running the enterprise that, that oversaw uh, climate change in, for DOD, uh, it was, uh, okay, we'll do all those things. We'll do the greenhouse gas counting, uh, but we're only going to do it in the context that it affects mission. We are going to save money. We are going to improve efficiency, and we're going to do all these things, and it'll be fine, but we're not doing it because you told us to. Um, but you move administrations, and then the Trump administration came in and said, you don't have to think about climate change anymore. And the military said, well, okay, but we're going to anyway because it affects our mission, and we're going to still do these things. 
And so whereas administrations and politics goes up and down in these wide swings, uh, the DOD tends to do small swings uh, up and down and still focuses on this issue. It is often the case that people ask me why people care, why DOD even cares about this. It's a conservative, a stereotypically more conservative organization and a stereotypically more progressive issue. And the fact of the matter is, is that there's more pragmatism here than anything else. Um, uh, the climate change affects infrastructure. Uh, you know, whether it's $5 billion of damage to Tyndall Air Force Base in the Panhandle of Florida or $3.5 billion of damage from another hurricane on the North Carolina coast or a billion dollars worth of flood damage at Offutt Air Force Base in, in Nebraska, which houses Strategic Command headquarters, you know, where we control our nuclear arsenal. These kinds of impacts are highly relevant to the Department of Defense and whether it, how it does its mission. It also worries about missions it's going to get in the future. If, if we have, and if you look at those NOAA charts about the number of billion dollar disasters that we've got, you know, it, over time, the, the line goes like this. And, and so we should all expect uh, the number of disasters that we're going to have to buy our way out of, um, you, you know, to increase over time significantly. And we're the lucky ones, right? Uh, the U.S. has money. We can spend our way out of a lot of this stuff and just recover. Uh, around the world, there are a lot of nations that are way more screwed than us. And yeah, you know, I'm being a little bit candid here, but when Pakistan is a third underwater and they have nuclear weapons, and if the people there are unsatisfied with the, the dynamics and the recovery that they're getting, you're going to have violent extremist organizations that bubble up. And how secure do you feel those weapons are? How comfortable do you feel that they're not going to get, uh, you know, there's not going to be some sort of a violent riot and that the, they lose, lose lock on, on those things? These dynamics all tie together. And so as DOD thinks about these things, and I don't, I don't want to use up the whole time. I could talk for 40 minutes for the record. Um, but, but, you know, fundamentally, I, I, what I want you to understand is from a, a DOD perspective, from a security perspective, that climate change is, and focusing on this issue is more about protecting yourself from the environment than protecting the environment. This is not about doing the nice thing. It's about continuing to do the same mission you've always been doing. It's not about hitting your goals. It's about continuing to do your national defense job. You're going to hit the goals too, or try to, or make a head nod to them or whatever, but you're going to continue to do the things that you need to do in order to do your job. Um, and, and so in that context, and, and uh, we can set this aside, but we can talk about emissions later, <clears throat> but this isn't about emissions from a security perspective. Okay. So what we've got here today and the panel you're going to listen to uh, has representatives from uh DHS or, or the Coast Guard in particular from the State Department. And in, in that context, the, uh, one of the, the experts in the State Department who focuses on the intelligence community and intelligence assessments and the climate change impacts there and the climate security advisor to the Air Force. And so in that context, we're going to have the hopefully uh, you'll get a fuller picture than what I've been able to get go through in five minutes of the impacts that climate change is having on our national security and why it's so important that we do all the rest of these things in order to deal with it. So um, to start, and rather than hearing more of me talking, which you really don't want to do, you know, I'm, I'm going to hand it off to our panel to introduce uh, themselves, 
and maybe talk a little bit about how the ways are that you work on the intersection between climate and security and, and, and maybe add one more layer on how your agency views this issue. Um, whether it's the, the narrow agency or the larger enterprise that you're part of, how are they looking at, at this issue as well? Does it match what I've been describing or, or is it more of a, a sustainability mindset? So I, I'll throw all those questions out for you and, and um, maybe we'll ask Candace to go first. Thank you, John. And thank you so much um, to the organizers for inviting me to speak here today. My name is Candace Knackman, and I am the U.S. Coast Guard's uh, Senior Ocean Policy and Program Advisor. Uh, next week will be my one-year anniversary in this position, so I'm still every day learning a lot about um, the missions of the Coast Guard. I have to tell you, I was quite shocked to learn that they have 11 missions Um the Coast Guard is, you know, they're not only a member of the armed services, they're a law enforcement agency, they're a regulatory agency, they're um, a member of the U.S. intelligence community, they're our first responders, they're environmental stewards. And so, you know, that really positions the Coast Guard very well um, to be part of this conversation when it comes to the impacts of climate change, to adaptation, to mitigation, and to figuring out how we move forward as a nation to deal with the impacts of climate change. And so one of my roles um, within the US Coast Guard is to really put the Coast Guard into that interagency, that partnership um, conversations about climate change and how we can move forward. Um, I do just, um, you know, John talked about national security and I'm just gonna challenge a little bit because John, you kind of did a national security and where I think in the Coast Guard, we're trying to really talk about national security is. Because, you know, so national security encompasses both national defense, which I think a bit is what you were talking about, but it also encompasses homeland and national security. So when we're talking about national security, we are talking about that military defense, but we're also talking about economic security, food security, environmental security, and a whole long host of, of other um things that we could fit into that definition. And so when I talk about the, the impacts of climate change and what that means to national security, it really goes far beyond um, national defense. Um, I don't know. And how am I doing on my time? I, I could talk for You're a lot great. longer. Why don't okay. you take a couple more minutes and talk a bit about how the Coast Guard is viewing this issue? Sure. Great. Thanks. So just about two months ago, um, our Commandant, um, Admiral Fagan, released the first ever um, U.S. Coast Guard climate framework. And basically the top line message here with um, the release of this climate framework is that it focuses on three things. It focuses on preparedness, resilience, and collaboration with partners and stakeholders to best position the Coast Guard for the challenges climate change present to all of us. So again, as the um, as kind of the, the premier maritime service that the American people and the public really rely on, um, we are uniquely positioned to promote um, national security, defend the homeland, and respond to climate change all at the same time. And so we have three lines of effort within this um, new climate framework, really a first of its kind for the U.S. Coast Guard. One is build climate resilience in our workforce, infrastructure, and our assets. And just as one quick example, um, one way that the Coast Guard is doing this is actually our training center in Petaluma, California, um, building a microgrid. And um, what this is going to do is it's actually going to help 
um, all of the folks who work at this training center, so 1,400 active duty reserve civilian um, employees, as well as their dependents, um, be able to withstand the many types of different um, disasters and, and issues that we see in Northern California, droughts, wildfire, um, and everything else um, in between. So that's that's one part is the resilience part. But we also have the preparedness and response piece to all of this. Um, the Coast Guard is often the first responder to a natural disaster. We are seeing um, more frequent and more severe hurricanes, flooding, and the like. And just as one quick example, Hurricane Ian, which hit the west coast of Florida um, September of last year, you know, people saw the daring rescues from the Coast Guard helicopters. But something that people might not be aware of is that the Coast Guard also maintains all of the aids to navigation, which allow for maritime commerce. And as our district commander actually in that region likes to say, no shipping, no shopping. So if you... <laughs> So this gets into the economic security piece of all of this. And so within 48 hours of Hurricane Ian making landfall, the nearly 500 aids to navigation that had been knocked offline by the hurricane were back online because of the Coast Guard. So again, that allowed these major ports in the southeast part of the United States to reopen within two days of a major hurricane hitting. And then finally, it's the partnership piece. The part where the Coast Guard can't do it alone, and I think my fellow panelists are going to agree that when we're talking about working on this issue within the federal government, we're talking about working at it at the federal family level, the state level, local level, but also with industry and with other partners. And so the U.S. Coast Guard is uniquely positioned with our assets, both our um, maritime assets, our aviation assets, to help contribute to um, understanding the impacts of climate change. Thank you. And, and, and taking away from that, and I want you to remember, so the Coast Guard is affected uh, not only because it gets more to do because of climate change, it is an operational response organization, but also because they need to, to ensure that they have resilience to climate change, that climate change is going to inherently make it more difficult for them to do their jobs. Um, Chelsea, let's uh, turn to you. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how we look at this uh, from a global perspective, from the State Department's perspective. Uh, give some of your intel insights here as well and talk a little bit about the role you play at the State Department on this. Thank you so much for the introduction. I'm very excited to be here today. Uh, I think my boss is asking me to not leave the office as often, uh, but it is a very important issue. So I'm very excited to be here to discuss it. So I am the lead climate security analyst at the State Department. I am a geographer. I'm a geospatial human geographer working in the office of the geographer and global issues. So I have the best job in my opinion. I am a Intel analyst, all source Intel analyst. My main client is John Kerry. He is on the special envoy for the pres special presidential envoy for climate change. My boss jokes because I um, speak a few languages and he jokes one of them is acronyms. So I, I forgive me if I'm a little slow thinking or spelling out these acronyms for you. And I also brief uh, weekly as well, the, I have to write it actually, the Bureau of Oceans and International Environmental and Scientific Affairs. We just say ESG and CDG. 
So, uh, yes. Uh, what does that entail? Well, I am, I like to often say liaison. I am the bridge for my clients with the, with the Intel community. And so my job is to collaborate with the Intel community, engage with them, all things climate. My portfolio is at the global scale. That's quite a large task, many countries to look at. But specifically, I'm part of a team. I would like to clarify that. I am on the climate change portfolio. But what's specifically given my expertise is climate impact. So I really like how you touched on that because Impacts is a national security threat. It's actually a human security threat, as John mentioned earlier. This is a critical issue that regardless of one's opinion or not, human security is threatened. And so my job in the Intel world is to understand and collaborate with my uh, colleagues on how to address that and support that moving forward for the safety of our nation. So I'll, I'll stop there on my intro and I'll let you go. All right. Esther is the Air Force's climate advisor. This is a, a new position in this administration. One of the, th you know, I've said that administrations, uh, you know, have the D and the DOD things have, uh, you know, not fluctuated that much. Well, this is one way in th which they did. In this administration, they've set up climate advisors in each of the military departments. Uh, and Esther has that role inside the Air Force. Thanks, John. And thanks, Amy, and the whole organization for, for having us here. This is really a powerhouse panel, and I'm just honored to be here with uh, Chelsea and Candice as well. So um, thanks for, for having us. But yes, yeah, so I am the first uh, climate advisor to the Assistant Secretary of the Air Force Installations, Energy, and Environment. Um, my counterparts in Army and Navy are bucketed under, under similar uh, assistant secretaries. And I really view this role around resilience and mission, as, as John alluded to. So you know, the DOD has been planning and preparing for threats for as since they've they've begun. So now it's it's cyber or near peer adversaries and also a changing climate. And I think what um, the impacts, unfortunately, John already stole two of our impacts because two of the ones he mentioned are Air Force impacts. And I think for for us, it's important to recognize that we are already seeing the impacts. This is not a coming down the road impacts. This is happening right now. So we're seeing you know more extreme storms. We're seeing extreme precipitation, uh, rising tides, extreme heat. And I think what the you know impacts that he mentioned off at flooding in 2019, um, the sections of Vandenberg have been closed out Space Force Base due to wildfire risk, um, delaying a launch. Service members have been diverted from deploying uh, to, to Europe to respond to crises at home during Hurricane Florence. And there's just a, a breadth of impacts that we're seeing. And so here at the Air Force, as John mentioned, um, we've been working on resilience for a long, long time. And this is just a, a new area where we're continuing to expand, but we have been working on it across administrations um, because we recognize that threat to readiness, because when we're not able to do you know, the stereotypical training because of heat indexes being too high for individuals to be outside during black flag days, or when we're not having the water resources we need in regions out in the Southwest, or when our base is just leveled like hurricane uh, down with uh, Tyndall. So I think what is exciting to see, I would say actually in, in this current era is that all three services now have climate action plans. 
And the Air Force Climate Action Plan has three broad buckets, uh, which are relatively similar, I'd say, across the services and priorities. It's about maintaining air and space dominance. It's about making sure we have a climate-informed decision-making. And it's about pursuing alternative energy and a diverse portfolio of energy sources and energy efficiency. So I think each of those uh, objectives do have subsections and will actually be, you'll see soon a climate implementation plan or climate campaign plan coming out, um, which will be public soon, which will outline how we're going to achieve each of these objectives. But in the climate action plan, I'll, I'll just provide a few examples. It's about, you know, evaluating how um, climate change impacts our basing. It's about looking at what we have insulation energy plans where we assess the energy needs on bases and how we are able to meet those needs and then filling gaps with microgrids or solar. Um, It's also about integrating climate into our education, whether at the academy level or um, at the professional level. And it's also about looking at next generation technology. Some of the incredible opportunities we have that are really around mission. It's about, we need to get to these places and more efficiency gets us to those places. We all know the examples of Iraq and Afghanistan and the challenges and um, horrible casualties that happened around fuel convoys and those uh, logistics. So we see this as a mission need to be able to increase that efficiency and find alternative um, sources. And also it adds to our diversity of energy as well. So I think there's just a few short examples of where we're seeing exciting ways for us to both respond to climate change, but also enhance our mission readiness. So um, with that, I know there's probably plenty of questions. I'll, I'll pause there. Thanks. So, so what you've heard is a, a clear uh, view of the impacts of climate change, a clear priority on the impacts of climate change. Um, there's an old saying in Washington that uh, strategy without budget is hallucination. The, um, do, do we have a sense, and, and feel free to say we're hallucinating here, I mean, is there a lot of money moving inside of your agencies uh, towards these things? Now, uh, I, I, the folks on this panel are not all budget people. I'm the former deputy comptroller of DOD. Budget is something I'm very comfortable with. Not everybody is as comfortable with budget as I am. So feel free to punt. Um, but but can you talk a little bit about whether you're seeing the dollars in the degree the degree to which uh, the need is? Do they compare at all? I can take that. Why don't you start starting. Um, Thank you, John, for that question during hearing season. We appreciate it. Um, so I, I think what from our perspective, you know, our our budgeting is about looking at the the mission needs across the portfolio, and as part of our, our climate action plan, one of our key results is investing $100 million per year by FY27 to improve base resilience. So that I think is the signals that we're providing at the Air Force to show that we're serious about this and that we have priorities and goals to enhance our base resiliency. Um, and that includes in addressing the, the risk to climate change. So um, I think there's definitely some opportunities where we've seen success with third-party financing and a lot of creative solutions for um, finding ways to finance our our resiliency. And I think that's something that we're really excited about is the diversity of options that you have now. It's not just about, you know, 
us or the, or the DOD providing the money. It's also working with communities, figuring out ways where there's partnership opportunities. Um, the community is also running out of water. We are not isolated uh, installations. We're not um, sanctuaries anymore, as the term typically goes. So uh, integrating our community partnerships in, in response to climate is also a huge priority. All right. Chelsea, I know that you wanted to punt the uh, budget stuff. <laughs> you can feel free. Only but, on but, the spot. Well, no, no, speak. seriously. She's an intel analyst, not a budget analyst. <laughs> but but if, if there are any thoughts you have within the State Department on, on funding, I know that's always a sore spot for state anyway. Um, <laughs> but I will, I will say, I'll say a few things. Uh, well, as I mentioned earlier in expanding what I said, uh, climate impacts is a human security issue, right? A national security issue. So, and I also mentioned earlier that I'm part of a science team. So I'm the lead on climate change portfolio, but we also have a Arctic and space analyst. We also have another teammate who is very, very busy, but they work on environmental crimes. They also work on health. They work on um, water security. These are all related to climate change impacts. So with my team or our team, we intersect, we overlap with each other quite often. So budget-wise, there is a concern in investment in this moving forward. One thing that I've engaged with since I've started at State, I've been here for about a year. And before that, I was actually at NGA. So I'm quite biased in the tech world. I uh, was a geospatial analyst as well as an imagery analyst, but that was also my academic training. Uh, but aside from that, there is a center, uh, quite quite new, I believe around, don't quote me, about three-ish years, the Center for Data Analytics, and they have a data, climate change data campaign. And this was an effort, a huge effort on the state end um, an organization or a center that is engaging within the intelligence community, but at the unclassified level. So one of the things that I love about my portfolio is that majority of climate change is unclassified, which is nice because if you've heard me speak before, one of the things I argue is, or my mantra, you can say, is think global, act local. This is a climate security issue for everyone. And the way we engage, for example, climate impacts such as drought, flooding, as you mentioned earlier, John, in Pakistan, the flooding. I mean, these are concerns. So there is push. There is a mission to address the security issues related to climate impacts or environmental impacts, as you want to call it. So there is a budget, but I will stop there. All right. Candice. Great. Thanks. Um, you know, so I think. One of the first things that the Coast Guard did to recognize that they need to work in this space is actually by creating my position. I'm the first ever senior ocean policy and program advisor at the U.S. Coast Guard. And as I said, next week will be my one year anniversary. I'd spent uh, 17 plus years before that actually working for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Um, and so I'm one of only two, as far as I know, senior policy advisors in the Coast Guard. The other is the senior Arctic policy advisor. And he and I, when we actually both show up to the office on the same day, sit in the same uh, room. So, you know, you have someone that's focusing on the ocean. And um, I will just note that a couple of weeks ago, the administration released the first ever interagency ocean climate action plan because with that, there is no path to a healthy um, climate and to a healthy environment without a healthy ocean. Um, and so, you know, myself and then Arctic um, advisor, and, you know, as we're seeing the Arctic is warming, I think now it's almost four times as fast as the rest of the globe. So, so the Coast Guard is taking this, this very seriously. 
Um, but, you know, to, to the budget question, um, the FY24 presidential budget has been um, released. So so I can speak a little bit because um, that is publicly available information um, out there. But there's $25 million um, in that for the Coast Guard to acquire a commercially available um, icebreaker. And um, this is kind of a, a holdover while our next um, generation of polar security cutters are, are being constructed. And a lot of this has to do, you know, this is a huge priority for the Coast Guard and for the U.S. Navy, actually, um, because it's it's vital to project U.S. sovereignty and presence in the Arctic region. Um, you know, this is becoming more and more important, especially, you know, um, as we see competition and the geopolitical situation, um, you know, whether it be from nations calling themselves near Arctic states, um, such as China, um, looking to move into the region. Um, obviously, the geopolitical situation going on with Russia and um, their more than year-long illegal um, invasion of the Ukraine. And so what can we as the U.S. Armed Services be doing um, to increase our presence? And so there is money in the budget um, to, to do that. But then um, coming back to to what I was talking about with economic security and maritime um, commerce, maritime transportation, um, I did fail to mention that my position is actually within the Marine Transportation Systems Directorate at the Coast Guard, although I do work across the Coast Guard enterprise. And I'm um, sorry, I just want to make sure I get these numbers right. But more than 90% of U.S. imports and exports move by ship through approximately 360 commercial ports, over 95,000 miles of shoreline and 25,000 miles of navigable river and coastal waterways. And that today's maritime or marine transportation system supports $5.4 trillion in economic activity. That's trillion and more than 30.8 million jobs. And so as we've already heard talked a lot about today, the, the Inflation Reduction Act, a bipartisan infrastructure law, um, there's actually money in there, not specifically coming to the Coast Guard, but um, for example, the Department of Transportation um, will be awarding $230 million in funding um, to help with port infrastructure. Um, and 13 million of that would be for marine highway program to support waterborne um, freight service. So the administration definitely recognizes the importance of what we need to um, enhance our infrastructure in response um, to climate change. So what you're hearing is investments in resilience, investments in analytics, um, and, and, and thinking about how, but these are all very mission focused, right? These are, how can I continue to do my job? How am I going to be thinking about the world as it changes going into the future? And how am I going to operate in that environment? Can we talk a little bit now about gaps? What are you going to need going forward? What are some of the things that, um, that you don't have in hand yet that you'd like to have in the future or that you can project you're going to need in the future? Um, you know, what, what are some of the, the more important enablers of, of achieving your agency's uh, climate goals uh, more broadly? Who wants to start? Can I start? This is my favorite question. <laughs> <laughs> and it may be because I'm biased. Data, 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 and data. Uh, what do I mean by that? When you say gaps, this is one of the things that I really like to highlight. We are, we are accustomed to organized systems and we inherit those systems and we just go with it. But let's say we're in a region of the world where we don't have that nice organized census data that we're used to pulling that you see in Norway or that you see in France. Um, I'm speaking specifically in regions that were part of the former Soviet Union, for example. Uh, you have a lot of ethnic groups. So why am I saying this? 
Because when you don't have the data you're used to, we often say, oh, there's no data. I would like to say there is data. It's just not in the format in the way that we're accustomed to. So this is where it requires us, uh, both private and government, to be creative, to start thinking, how can we, and again, I'm, a, I'm biased, I'm a spatial modeler, how can we spatially identify the data and categorize it and collect it in a way that would make sense? I liked earlier on the panel today that I heard about it is the appropriate level and measurement of that data putting into your model. If we ask questions to certain complex human environmental complex uh, situations that we're trying to address that relate to climate impacts, how can we answer those questions if we don't have a standardization of our data? Or if we don't have clear, and this is another thing that's my mantra, definitions. How are we using our terms? Because terms can mean different things to different fields. So one that I often use, a common example, uh, recently I, was, I gave a guest lecture at the University of Maryland, is the term adaptation. Oftentimes, and I'm guilty of it, we use the term adaptation through a human lens. When I say adaptation to climate change, a simple example is we buy more air conditioning units. We're adapting, right, to our environment, the impacts. It's getting hotter. But if you talk to someone who's an evolutionary biologist, they're going to think of adaptation through the lens of plants. Now, plants are different from humans in the context that plants can quickly genetically change to adapt to drought, Plants can adapt and change to warming nighttime temperatures. So when you're having these intersection, these cross interagency conversations within the Intel world, but also in the unclassified circles, academic circles, research circles, I often push for clarity on how we're using our terms. And then understanding that, we then need to understand, define how we're collecting and categorizing our data. Because you could be using the same data, but having it organized and collected in a different format, and we have different results within our spatial models. Who wants to go next? I can uh, I can go. I think I, I completely agree with you. And I think where um, the Air Force sees is some some exciting areas where we're growing, but our still capabilities are are not quite there, is around providing that data, having that data um we use a, a broad swath of different platforms for our data when we're assessing uh, basing decisions or when we're integrating this into to thinking about um, next steps. And so we'll use the, the FEMA risk index. We'll use uh, the 14th Weather Squadron's information and data. So we're working to help um, build that out in a way that is uh, a little more cohesive. And I think understanding those different parameters is, is really important. I'd say our enablers are kind of the flip side of that. I mean, we do these installation energy plans where we go onto base, we interview every single mission and we hear what they're dealing with. We also do that for climates. So we have installation climate resilience plans now that we've done um, two at Vandenberg Air Force Base and um, JBLE. And those assessments are kind of get to that data point. You have to understand what people are seeing on the ground and you do want the, the high level data as well, but you also want sometimes anecdotal pieces of like, you know, actually, sir, we don't, we're not worried about that flooding over there because we have mitigation 
methods that are already working, or we are um, dealing with different impacts than, than maybe uh, what we would initially think. So um, having that type of information is, has been really useful for us and a huge enabler to be able to figure out what the needs are and to, to move forward from there. Um, and so I completely agree not to sound like a broken record, but yeah, data models, um, just, I'll, I'll give a couple of examples. One, um, us coast guard, uh, does permitting for bridges over water. And one thing that our analysts are facing right now is folks looking to build, you know, future bridges or to reinforce current bridges. How high do you tell them to build it based on sea level rise? And so what we need are the models to know how high, um, the water levels are going to be by these bridges so that they can know um, what to do as far as future permitting. Um, you know, also information and data about where are different species, fish species, marine mammal species going to be moving as um, water temperatures change, because obviously um, the Coast Guard is a huge partner with NOAA in enforcing um, the rule of law when it comes to illegal, unreported and unregulated fishing. So we, we need to know where these fish are moving to so that we can realign um, where we put our assets to combat um, those illegal fishing efforts um, by other nations. And then finally, uh, and, and I think uh, touched on this a little bit in some of the earlier commentary is, you know, building out the workforce and the knowledge sets and, you know, do we have the right people in our workforce right now? And so that's one thing that the climate U.S. Coast Guard climate framework touches on is building that um, new generation of um, the workforce to, to better understand climate. And I believe later today you have someone from Department of Homeland Security on one of your panels and they actually, the department, started this new climate change professionals program where they're taking um, every year a cadre of um, folks within the department and placing them across the component agencies um, within the department to help build that climate literacy. Um, we at the Coast Guard actually just hosted our first um, climate change program professional and um, are really excited to be hosting um, our second one coming up here this summer. So, so the Coast Guard and the Department of Homeland Security both are looking to build um, that knowledge base and to start building that climate literacy tools within the department. So, so we're coming up to time. I've gotten the flag from the back of the room already. I'm going to run over just a smidge. The, the, the fact of the matter is, is that um, what you've heard today is that climate change is affecting everybody's job within the security enterprise. It's not an or, and we heard this earlier, it was, there was a quote, uh, I liked it, it was like, sustainability is not a separate thing, it's part of everything, right? Well, this is not just sustainability, it's climate change. Climate change affects everybody's mission differently, but your mission's still your mission. And so if you are worried about instability abroad, you're worried about climate change too. It's not or, it's and, it's how does this affect this? How does this affect, how does climate change affect Chinese decision-making, Russian decision-making? How does it affect my ability to deploy forces from a military base? How much am I gonna have to respond to hurricanes now that I'm expecting more and worse ones? That 100-year storm happens every year. What does that mean? You know, those kinds of dynamics are is the math that we're going to have to go through in order to do our job in this new future. And there's no way around it. We are all screwed, but we can do something about it. Um, and, and so with that, let me pause. We started five minutes late. I'm going to I'm going to use my prerogative to ask me have the audience ask maybe a question or two. Um Let's let's take two questions and then we'll let the panel uh, take them both. 
um, whichever one they'll get to choose which one they like the best. Um, thanks. In fantastic discussion. And um, I like the hallucination comment a lot too, John. Uh, out in the, the non-government world, uh, a lot of companies report that they're having a hard time funding projects to, to defend, or I could say to harden assets against conditions that haven't yet happened. Although I think a previous panelist said, once something unprecedented happens over and over again, it becomes precedented and it's not unforeseeable anymore. You can't, you can't use that to get out of jail anymore. Are you finding any success when you're thinking about a certain base and a certain, certain mission with certain assets that are critical? Um, funding a project to harden that asset against something that in that area, that geography hasn't appeared yet, but in all likelihood in the next 5, 10, 15 years, seems like high probability it's going to come. Can you get money and start projects for things that haven't happened yet? All right. So that's that's one question. We got one more in the back here. I want to do I want to hit both questions and let them let them answer. So that first one is focused on uh, what whether you can get support for I'm going to say support, not just money, support for things and uh, and thoughts and budgets and initiatives um, just because they haven't even if they haven't happened yet. But, but we know they're coming. So you, all three of you are impressive, amazing rock stars. Thank you for being here. Um, so Understanding you're a very small cadre, how do you look to mentor the people coming behind you? Ooh, that's a good one too. And I didn't even get to my training and workforce questions, so let's let's yeah. leverage that. You, I'm sure you all have prepped answers for that one. Um, Esther, you got your mic ready, so why don't you go first? Sure. So for um, around support for hardening uh, infrastructure and and around mission where impacts maybe haven't happened. I think what what I'd say is first back to those insulation energy and climate uh, plans that we're doing. So those are thinking about both the, the current and thinking about the future as well. And I think those assessments are the first step. I'd also add we are doing projects in places and it's strategically prioritized somewhat based on the the monies that you're using. You know, ERSIP, a, a program that we have funded a lot of microgrids through is prioritized based on mission importance as well. So we look at the mission importance first, um, and that's just going to be how the Air Force is always going to run. But I'd say the the impacts that we are now able to understand better of what's coming down the road, that's starting to be incorporated in that process as well. So I think the, the money is always going to be there for resilience projects, and the prioritization is still going to be on mission, but it, layering in that climate piece is something that's starting to happen already. So um, I think the it, it's, you know, money is always a challenge, but um, in the current framework that we're developing, I think that's going to be a much more, uh, I don't want to use the word resilient again, a much, <laughs> a much better system for the future. Uh, so two things I always say, I like these one-liners because they're easy to remember. Um, first of all, climate change impacts is an expensive issue. And as a capitalist nation, we care when we lose money. So it is a concern, economically speaking. So investing in not to lose money is definitely a nice incentive. Uh, another thing I would point out, and this goes more to the security issue we've been talking about today, is, and, I, it, and it's very true, a hungry man is an angry man. And when you have an angry man and you're in regions where there's drought and you can't feed your family and you have lost your livelihoods as a farmer, you're going to have a crisis and you're going to have a security threat. And those security threats are going to be a domino effect. So this is of interest of high income nations, specifically when it comes to loss and damage discussions 
discussions that happen at COP27, and they will continue, and they have been continuing. Uh, for example, another climate change impact is uh, climate migration. We see this in the, the situation in Madagascar and the islands. Where do people go? Oftentimes, we have the most vulnerable who can't do anything. So how, how are you going to govern a community that can't even survive? So these are issues that we are actually dealing with now. And the push to move forward, scientifically speaking, as well as investment-wise, in my perspective, has been really been led more by the private sector. A lot of this green initiative, a lot of the sustainability issues that are being addressed. And in conjunction with the government, I find that is a promising future. So I do think there is opportunities and it's moving. And then to go off of John's question about training and things like that, I would just like to mention, too, it's quite exciting. Uh, I completed a few weeks ago the climate diplomacy course at the FSI Foreign Service Institute. Uh, and it was excellent. It was nice. It was majority of my clients speaking in that in that course. But there is a big push. And why is there a push for an FSI course to be open to everyone at state? Well, because it, it touches on economic issues. It touches on policy issues. It touches on communication of policy. How do you even talk diplomacy? How do you even talk about these issues with nations that don't want to or cannot invest in climate related issues? Um, so I'll start with the the mentor question in the back. Um, so for me, it was actually a little hard to swallow about seven years ago when my boss came and said, I'm going to give you an intern that I was old enough to have an intern of my own. Um, I, I didn't think of myself as that age yet. But um, so... Um, you know, I, I've actually been been mentoring and, and having interns um, with, with the program that I just mentioned through Department of Homeland Security. I have hosted um, the new fellow and will be hosting the next one as well. Um, but I've also gone back to my university, um, Go Hurricanes, University of Miami, um, and talked to the, to the current students and the next generation and, you know, tried to give them advice of, of what they need um, to move up. But it's true, you know, we need we need those climate literate um, folks coming up, the Gen Zers. Um, to the to the question over here about how do you get funding um, for things that might not have, have yet occurred. So last summer, um, the Coast Guard actually hosted, um, they hold these evergreen events. They pick a topic and um, bring people from within the Coast Guard, other agencies, private sector, um, to talk about it. And so this one was focused on climate change and don't have time to go into everything. But basically, um, the 60 plus participants kind of all agreed that there were kind of three um, action forcing forcing truths that are going to directly impact the Coast Guard as climate change comes about. And it's that climate change is increasing the demand signal for our missions, as I've already mentioned. It's altering the challenge profile of our operations in the maritime environment and that these weather patterns will change and sea level will continue to rise because of current trends. And that's going to shift how the Coast Guard must approach its mission set. So the Coast Guard um, is working on this. We're briefing our leadership. They're aware. Um, as I mentioned earlier, also, we have the training center Penaluma with the microgrid. Um, we're halfway through the two-year construction of that. And so, so the Coast Guard is looking out not just to tomorrow, but even out to 50 years. And what do we need to be doing now to prepare for these changes that we're seeing, as John said, the we're screwed kind of um, scenario. But the Coast Guard is, you know, doesn't want to be 50 years down the road and just starting to think about it. 
And I'll add for the climate uh, mentoring piece. So as we said, we are building out classes at the Air Force Academy and also professional development um, as continuing education. That's part of our climate action plan. So that's a component of it. And then I'll, um, you know, John and, and I have worked with a similar organization, the Center for Climate and Security, and I actually founded a fellowship program for that for climate and security. Um, we had excellent batches of fellows go through. All of them are now scattered across the government working on, you know, some on climate issues and some on not. But that actually, for from my perspective, is great because that means we have people in different parts of the government who have this understanding and background. So I think that's that's how we're getting at it from, a, you know, both the government side, but then also the, the nonprofit and uh, think tank side. Well, you've been very patient. We're, we are 10 minutes past time and you're waiting on lunch. Can we have a big round of applause for this excellent panel of experts? And that's a wrap on The Buzz with Act IAC. Join us next week for more hot topics and top issues affecting the federal technology market. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. And follow us on Twitter at ActIAC. More information about today's show can be found in the episode notes. For more insights, visit www.actiac.org. Thanks for listening.